influx of both Scotch-Irish and Germans that kind of went down this valley of Virginia. And of course, what they did is they took this instrument or they built this instrument as the memory of this German instrument. They built it as they were coming. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. Appalachia Meets World, it's Will and Neil. Don't forget, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Send them your info. Download their guide. Lots of great materials through SOAR. What's going on, Willie? Wrapping up the play this weekend. Final two shows. Nice. I think we mentioned that before. I may have. I mean, I guess I guess you got to take a round of applause, a bow, I guess, during a bow, a bow, man, a bow. On the final show, is it like an extended bow, or how's it work? We actually had to practice the bow. Surprisingly okay. enough, kind of like practicing practicing a curtsy. Same thing. <laughs> How about you? What's going on there? Taking care of kids, couple sick kids. 90 million things going 100 miles an hour. Speaking of sick, I'm still trying to get my voice back, if you can't if you can't tell. <clears throat> yeah, I knew it was struggling a little bit, but uh, you sound okay. It'll be all right. You got an app biz for me this week? I do. Let's hear it. Because this is our music series, part two, <laughs> it's a little shop, husband and wife, in Taylor's, South Carolina, the Appalachian Spirit Folk Instruments Company. They actually make zithers. Have you ever heard of a zither? Oh, yeah. Not real good with one, but I've heard of it. They handmade, custom-made zithers. So if you're shopping for a zither, check this place out. Looking for a good Christmas gift. But they have a really good company. Seems like they're a really good couple and make quality, homemade, homegrown instruments. Uh, You can just give them a call, get them custom-made. Cool little shop. And when I say little, it's literally just the two of them. Awesome, man. Great way to do business. Sometimes small is better. Speaking of instruments, making instruments, you know, we we had Dr. Olson on last week talking Mm -hmm. about old-time bluegrass country music, (laughs) really kind of the creation of the commercialized music that we have in our region. But even before that, before music was commercialized, before they could put music on discs, historically in Appalachia, the only way they could get instruments, the only way they could pass it down was to make them. You know, we have a strong, rich history of instrument making in and throughout Appalachia. You know, boy, we would have struggled back in the day uh, in our childhood (laughs) if we had to make our own instruments, which I guess we kind of did with like pots and pans, but that doesn't really count. (laughs) When you think of Appalachian music, what instruments do you think of? Harmonica, guitar, banjo. I feel like the fiddle. I primarily think of the guitar, the banjo and the fiddle, right? Well, you got to throw the harmonica in there. Yeah, I'll give you the harmonica. There are these other ones that are instrumental or common throughout Appalachia. And I'm going to see if you know of them or have heard of them. I'm going to mention a couple. So the spoons. Oh, yeah. Play played them all the time. Yeah. You know, take two spoons, tap them together. But that, you know, back in the day in Appalachia, throughout Appalachia, very easy to get, very easy to play, but it make a tune. And, you know, you could hear it throughout the region. Another one. Kind of that mountain music, that clicking beat. If you've ever seen the Christmas special, Emmett Otter's Christmas special, then you know about the wash tub bass. The wash tub bass. I must admit, I know what a wash tub bass is, but I guess they played them. They played them back in the day. Have you ever seen Emmett Otter's Christmas special? Man, come on. I just. It's one of the best Christmas specials there is. Are you serious, Clark? (laughs) you're going to talk about if you're going to talk about one of the best ever come on now (laughs) anyway it's all about the washboard and the wash and 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 the base so what about the mandolin i know you've heard of the mandolin right oh yeah there's some cool tunes even mainstream tunes that play the mandolin if you ever see a live show and somebody's playing the mandolin man they can rock it out it's pretty cool but Little Ghost by the White Stripes, if you ever heard that song. They mm-hmm. kill the mandolin in that. 
uh, Losing My Religion by R.E.M. I know you've heard that. Oh, yeah. It's got the mandolin all in it. Steep Canyon Rangers, if you ever heard of that band, they have a mandolin player that's fire. And then one of my favorite mandolin songs, I'm going to play it. stood on canal street i have not you wish i could play the mandolin i do too i'd go to canal street and play it the last instrument that i'm going to mention is prominent to the appalachian region it is <laughs> the dulcimer oh yeah the dulcimer you know i don't know my dulcimer history that's why i got you you know there there's the hammer dulcimer and then there's the Appalachian dulcimer. That's my favorite. That's I just my want favorite. to mention because of where we're from, you know, Jean Ritchie, she was once called the mother of folk, was responsible for kind of reviving the Appalachian dulcimer. It's got deep history in Appalachia, kind of German heritage, but Jean Ritchie really brought it back to life during the folk revival. And I only mention her because she's from Viper, Kentucky. Oh, yeah. Eastern Kentucky in Perry County. She's pretty obviously famous and especially for Appalachian dulcimer playing she inspired like Bob Dylan Shirley Collins Joni Mitchell Emmylou Harris to name a few but she's pretty legendary in our parts of the woods and legendary throughout in regards to dulcimers love it but speaking of that I don't really know much about the history of the dulcimer because it's so unique to Appalachia I feel like we should know more I feel like the guy we're having on tonight will be able to educate me, you, and all of our listeners on the dulcimer for sure. Definitely. And that's why we wanted to have him on the show. He's getting ready to open up the Appalachian Dulcimer Museum in Virginia. We wanted to talk to him, get a little bit, hear a little about the history of the dulcimer and what his collection consists of. Yeah, let's get him on, man. I got questions. special episode we have john hallberg he is an appalachian dulcimer historian collector he's also a historic cider producer and he is getting ready to open the appalachian dulcimer museum out of the estes mill in sperryville virginia and we'll let him talk a lot about that he's got some cool projects going on he has a large collection of appalachian dulcimers one of the largest in the country and we are thankful to have him have him on the show john we we definitely appreciate your time and, and thank you for being here thank you so much well one of the things i wanted to ask you real quick something that we usually kick off the show with this is totally unrelated to dulcimers, right, right. but we usually ask every guest, Neil and I have a tradition in our family, as most Appalachians do, around the holidays or anytime we have a get together, we have appetizers, usually more appetizers than the meal. So we wanted to ask you quickly, what's your favorite appetizer? Do you have a favorite appetizer or holiday dish? Wow. You know, that's a tough one. Something. I mean, you know. How about some hot cider? You know, uh, mold cider is really good. You know, uh, spice is really easy to go too far on. That whole thing about uh, cinnamon and nutmeg. So just a little bit in there with uh, like warm cider. That is a real fine one. Very, very good answer. Of course, that's a We're here in beautiful Sperryville, Virginia, which is about uh, 75 miles away from uh, Washington, D.C. First things that we hit somebody with when they walk in, when they are going to walk in the door here, because we're not open yet, we'll have an actual hammer dulcimer there, and we'll have an actual mountain dulcimer. Uh, of course, we have many more than just one actual mountain dulcimer, but we'll have one of those right next to a hammer dulcimer to tell people, hey, you know, there are two types of dulcimers, but they're both zithers. You know, so one's a, a, a fretted zither and one's an unfretted zither. So, you know, the very first thing is just to tell people, okay, we're talking about the Appalachian dulcimer here, the one that's either the boat shaped or the uh, Kentucky type, which is the hourglass shape. Yeah. 
The hammer dulcimer is actually the older instrument. It's uh, the one referenced in the Bible. So it goes way, way back, way back. The Appalachian dulcimer is probably one of those ones that is fathered by some European diatonic instruments. Uh, diatonic, we mean uh, that thing with the, some frets missing. You know, it'll go like two big frets, one small fret, two big frets, one, you know, a uh, combination uh, that you don't see on unusual guitar. It is one of those things, of course, where you say the Appalachian dulcimer and people think it's maybe ubiquitous and everywhere in Appalachian. Of course, that, that is a, a stronghold, that Southeast Kentucky. But as we know, it's not everywhere. It's in these little pockets, you know. It's there. It's kind of Watauga County and uh, that uh, northwestern North Carolina. And it's around Galax, Virginia. And, you know, those are really heavy areas. But no, it's one of those things where uh, we were talking a minute ago about the fact that there was this huge, huge uh, German influx into this country in the early 1700s. Uh, in particular, there was an instrument called the Scheitholt. No, I didn't curse. Uh, the Scheitholt <laughs> actually, it actually translates as firewood. Sounds like something I used to call wheel, John. Well, indeed. Uh, no, it actually translates as firewood. So uh, it's always kind of been looked as a, looked at like a lowly peasant instrument. So, you know, is it firewood because it's about the, the length of a piece of firewood or is it firewood because it's so lowly it could be chucked in the fire because nobody, you know, that whole thing. This instrument oh. called the Scheitholt, which really has the same, like I said, face on it as the dulcimer in terms of its fretboard and everything. It followed the Germans over. What, what we think probably happened is, of course, is that they didn't bring any with them because, you know, they were hard strapped coming over. It was, they were fleeing uh, religious persecution and, uh, you know, political stuff. So I guess that goes way back. It's religious stuff or political stuff people get upset about. Probably one of those things that they just had the memory of the instrument. So once they were over here and they were established, in Eastern Pennsylvania, because you know that whole thing about Pennsylvania Dutch, it's actually Pennsylvania German. Philadelphia area very early on, so let's say 1700 to 1720, you know they started really kind of coming in as a flood, and they brought this instrument. And of course, when that that area, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania, got quote unquote crowded, people started moving west. And what they started doing is rather than going over the mountains, of course, that's so early that the Indians were still there. They went down the valley. And they actually, there was some treaties uh, with some of the Indian tribes, you know, you can travel along this valley and, you know, we won't get attacked. And sometimes that held, sometimes it didn't. There was this great influx of both Scotch-Irish and Germans that kind of went down this valley of Virginia. And of course, what they did is they took this instrument or they built this instrument as uh, the memory of this German instrument. They built it as they were coming. As we were talking about the Scotch-Irish, of course, they're, they're going to want to play fast fiddle tunes. Germans actually played it and they had it as a church instrument. So they frequently it was bowed and frequently it was church music like hymns, etc. So, you know, the Scotch-Irish took it and, you know, the, the instrument itself wasn't really well suited for playing fiddle tunes. So what they did was, of course, they built a box underneath it. So if you build a box underneath it, it's going to increase the volume. It's going to make it more stable. So if you're playing it real fast, it's uh, the Scheitholt was actually uh, really just kind of this slender thing that sometimes was tapered, but sometimes not, but kind of boxy high, you know, so as high as it was wide. So if you build another box underneath it, of course, it made it more stable, but it made it so, of course, you could play fast tunes. And that right there is at least some of uh, what historians think, you know, uh, how the dulcimer developed. You gave an excellent history there of the Appalachian dulcimer and the difference between the Appalachian dulcimer and the hammer dulcimer. As a practicing luthier can you just tell the listeners what a luthier is some people may not know that term well i guess it's really just anybody that builds a and i guess it would be a, a stringed wooden instrument so you know anybody that builds a guitar would certainly be a luthier you know mandolins ukuleles that kind of thing uh, you learn just, from anyone just kind of a little bit of a hodgepodge I mean, I, I wasn't really a woodworker, so I did take on woodworking somewhat to become a dulcimer maker. And on these things, of course, if you're not doing it for any sort of living, there really is no time limit. So it's like, just do it right, you know. And of course, if you screw it up, you know, you can do another one. You invest a bunch of time in something, you know, it's like you want to get it right. I thought I read somewhere that uh, you had learned a little bit from Ralph Lee Smith. You know, it's funny, I've learned more, uh, of course, in terms of him, in terms of history, because he was a, a player, you know, a dulcimer player. So, I mean, he actually played in the White House for Carter. It's one of those things where 
just being in, uh, I guess that was one of the things that I kind of truncated the history on, you know, in the state where the, the dulcimer originally developed, which is Virginia, of course, it uh, further developed in Kentucky and Tennessee and whatnot. I'll talk about that in a minute. You know, it's one of those things where Ralph was here, he was 90. I met him when he was about 70. So uh, there's years, you know, that I didn't see him. You know, his last few years, he kind of took me under his wing and both for instruments, you know, in terms of actual uh, selling me and gifting me several instruments that were just really museum quality. But also, um, I interviewed him for a documentary, which will be coming out one day, which was great to have. But also just, you know, I'd have lunch with him sometimes when we talk about instruments. And it was like one of those things. He was the preeminent uh, historian in the world. So, you know, so, you know, read everything that he's uh, written. You know, you just try to soak up somebody like that's uh, knowledge, not to necessarily be a parrot of him, but to just uh, know the background of everything theoretically that he's uh, thought about and known. You know, you touched on kind of the Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia and that history, but what started your fascination with Appalachian dulcimers? Well, you know, of course, I'm kind of a music guy. When I was in high school, I guess, I was starting to listen to like uh, English folk music, Steel Eye Span, Fairport Convention, The Straubs, Pentangle, those kind of bands in the 60s, 70s, 80s that were, uh, you know, English bands. They were using a dulcimer, so you see this word on the on the record, it's dulcimer. And it's like, and then occasionally on the back of a dul- on the back of a record, you see an actual dulcimer. And then I remember in high school, uh, somebody brought a dulcimer in to get repaired in shop. Of course, twenty five probably years, twenty years probably went by before I got my first dulcimer. I got it when I was on uh, in Ocracoke, North Carolina, just uh, you know at the beach, you know. And there was these really cool dulcimers made by a local there named Adolfo Caruso, who's a shipmaker. His dulcimers all had this kind of like ship bow look like on the scroll and everything. But there, there was like 10 dulcimers there. They all had like duck, duck head on the scroll or whatever. And there was one that had a jumping dolphin. I get the dolphin one, of course. And then maybe next year I'll come back and maybe I'll get one of the, the duck head ones. So I get the dolphin, come back next year. They were all gone. He had sold them all and the guy had died. So it was like, oh. all right, no duck head dulcimer ever, unless I, maybe I find one. But uh but really cool, unique dulcimer, kind of a really big, deep one. So really kind of loud. Just, you know, that was my first foray into playing. And it took a few years for me to really get my, I guess, whistle wetted to the to the history of it. You do some reading, you find a, uh, an instrument or two. Because again, being here in Virginia, uh, down that great wagon road, that's where some of the instruments still are. They never went anywhere. So some of those oldest instruments are really just, just down the road from me. And when, when the museum actually opens, you will have different styles of, of dulcimers. And I think you have them laid uh, one through six. It's like A, B, C, D, E, F. But right, right. Uh, can you can you just explain what the difference is in those dulcimers? And it might be the region where they're made. You mentioned Kentucky. You mentioned right. Virginia. Is there a difference in shape? Is there a difference in style right, right. in those regions? You know, um, it's funny. Okay. Uh, I was mentioning Ralph Lee Smith. There's a guy named Lee Allen Smith. So two of the three, the same names, of course, he's not related, but he's one of the other just heavies in dulcimer. So in the 70s, he actually uh, did this, I guess, a postdoctorate thing, you know, where he spent three years, I guess, going around Appalachia in a van, looking for instruments, documenting them, uh, doing pictures of them and doing this like extensive uh, uh, categorization of like height, weight, how big is the scroll, you know, every variable on it. So uh I mean, I'm trying to kind of uh, follow in his footsteps in terms of, uh, you know, what we're actually doing here based on those categorizations, but based on his, uh, a, B, the, so his, he's the guy that did that A, B, C, D, E, F. So A would be the Scheitholt that I was talking about, that German instrument, which is usually just straight-sided, sometimes with a little bit of a taper. So maybe uh, looking like a little bit of a right triangle, you know, like a straight side and then one side, just a little bit uh, beveled. You'll have those. Then you'll have these instruments that are really kind of like a missing link one, which are straight on one side and then curved on the on another. So really just straight and then one bout like a Virginia dulcimer, like a boat shaped on the other side. Then you get, of course, to these uh, Virginia dulcimers, which I'm talking about, which are kind of the earliest dulcimers, which are really just boat shaped, but with a big wide fretboard. So what we really think happened, of course, is that that number A got placed on top of number C. So that's kind of the evolution. Virginia dulcimer is kind of being the first actual dulcimer. And then it's funny because a lot of the Virginia dulcimers you'll see, almost all of them, in fact, will have uh, um, hollow fretboards. But then you get to the Kentucky dulcimer, which is the double uh, curve ones. And guess what? When you uh, do a cross- The prettiest one, right? 
when you do a cross-section on a lot of those, a lot of those have solid fretboards. Is that like a different evolution that happened there? If it was the same evolution, wouldn't the fretboards be uh, hollow? Or are they just taking it one step further, making them solid because, you know, it's loud enough already. Of course, it uh, has the same sound. It has that same diatonic fretboard. Then, of course, you have that Galax dulcimer, which is the Virginia dulcimer, which is all tuned to high D. It'll have a, a, a false bottom on the bottom to increase its volume, but also so you can play it either on a table or on your lap and it won't uh, be deadened by your lap or whatever. You know, you got these various regional things that I think the, uh, the Kentucky Dulcimer maybe is related, of course, to the Virginia Dulcimer, but exactly how? It's like, is it just somebody taking a Virginia Dulcimer and conceptually saying, let me make it look like a fiddle and put that extra curve on it? Or is it just, you know, the day of the week that somebody, you know, happens to make something different? There probably is some things, of course, that are, uh, you know, tied to other things. But sometimes, usually it was just one type of wood that somebody had. So, you know, these very old dulcimers, you'll see they'll be all oak or all walnut or whatever. Not these specialized, you know, koa on top or whatever, like these new dulcimers. What they had, they used. You notice uh, some of those old dulcimers have like staple frets. You know, which of course are old like bailing wire or old like, you know, old old nails or something like that as the frets. Can you tell us why you chose to put the museum in uh, Sparrowville, Virginia? I'm just curious. I actually moved to Sparrowville about 25 years ago. So really it's the fact that of course I live here and then I've been going past this property, uh, the Estes Mill and looking at it for years. And then of course I saw it come up for sale. And there was a house associated with it. And I remember when I was looking at it, there were some people that looked at the mill as like this scary building that kind of kept them from looking at the house. And me, I was looking, looking at the mill like, okay, I want to buy this mill. You know, like uh, there's a house there you know, as well. I read a couple of different dates for this building, but it's, you know, either late 1700s or early 1800s. And people definitely like the fact that uh, I'm renovating this building because it's sat, of course, since right after World War II, which is of course about the time where a lot of mills went down because of the impending uh, modernization, people going away to uh, fight the war, et cetera, it came back. So that this, this is about when the, uh, the mill here went down. It was owned by the Estes family. Pete Estes was the sheriff here, really well-liked. We're close yeah. enough to DC, uh, certainly that this time of year, I mean, it's finishing up now with the, the leaf, but you know, they call it the leaf peepers. You know, the leaf folks come out and, uh, you know, of course, are a st- substantial shot in the arm to the economy. Uh, that can't hurt with, with the exposure that I was talking about. How many dulcimers you have that will actually be in the museum? With this huge influx that I got, I, I probably got uh, 15 or 20 from Ralph uh, years ago. I got about 20 instruments from uh, Roddy Moore, who's the other guy who's the real heavy in terms of a historian. He's down in um, Ferrum, Virginia, at the Blue Ridge Institute and Ferrum College, Blue Ridge Institute. He has uh, a bunch of inst- uh, instruments in the Blue Ridge Institute's collection, but then he also has a personal collection. But I guess he's got to a divestiture page where, where he was, when he called me, he was like, the, inst- uh, the, uh, uh, the museum, the Blue Ridge Institute Museum has enough. He's like, I'm looking to sell some of these. Would you like to buy a block of them? And I'm like, without anybody there as a, uh, uh, you know, bidding against me, and, uh, heck yeah. I mean, it felt a little like cheating buying a block of serious museum instruments because I, I like to flush them out of, uh, you know, the woods myself. But I wasn't going to turn that down because, uh, like I said, a lot of more real museum makers. Sure. So, um, I mean, really, at this point, sure. I think we've got both the Smithsonian and the Met kind of uh, beat in terms of historic instruments. They've actually probably got more instruments from famous people. So they've got uh, Richard Farina's instrument. They've got Gene Ritchie instruments. You know, they've got instruments from folks. But I think uh, in terms of the actual historic instruments, I've got one from J.E. Thomas. You guys probably know who that is. He was kind of the first mass-produced maker. So he was from Knott County, I guess. So uh, Gene Ritchie certainly knew about him. But uh, he sold them at the, uh, the Hindeman Settlement School. But he sold them probably starting about 1870, so before the school, but uh, then up to about 1930. So um, the one I have is, I think, 1927. So right, I think he died in 33. But him and another guy, Mr. Uh, Pritchard from West Virginia, they were kind of right after the Civil War, and they were kind of the first mass-produced makers. So, you know, there was probably 50 years of dulcimer production before that by guys who were just making them, but nobody really making them as a trade. You know, so you see after the Civil War, there's just kind of like tick up. 
of uh, production of, of dulcimers. Numbers wise, how many do you think you have? Um, we've got over a hundred instruments in the actual collection and there'll probably be, I think 60 to 70 at any one time, probably on display. I think I probably will actually have a little rotating display because I've been in touch with the Mercer Museum up in Pennsylvania, who are the guys who, of course, have got some very old Scheitholz. There's the Luray Pioneer Museum. They've got a couple of really nice instruments. They're just down the road there. So kind of forging some, um, you know, relationships with other institutions that might be cool to just have, you know, trade for three months or whatever that thing is, you know, that kind of thing. And some of those institutions, I, I know you mentioned the Smithsonian, the Blue Ridge Institute. There's also the Museum of Appalachia that I know has has yep. some uh, ten, Tennessee Tech. Donald Serwin. Yep, indeed. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to to mention some of those. So, so that's very cool. Do you have Do you have a, a favorite dulcimer, whether it's in your collection or not? Do you have a favorite dulcimer? Actually, recently there was something we kind of unearthed. You guys are probably familiar with Ann Grimes. She was actually, let's say, the first dulcimer historian. So in the '50s, kind of before. Folklorists like to talk about the folk revival era, and that's kind of starting in the 1960s. Anne Grimes um, actually had an instrument that was her favorite instrument, which is in the Smithsonian now. So virtually every time you see her uh, pictured with it, she's pictured with this instrument. I actually uh, found another one of those instruments several years ago down in Tennessee. And then I was traded another instrument by this maker. Of course, at this time, it's still an unknown maker. This great instrument that has a stepped tail which is uh, one of the earliest tail pieces. It has hand-forged uh, iron tuning pegs. So it's this really kind of unique instrument that was Ann Grimes' favorite instrument. So I'm in several, of course, Facebook dulcimer groups or whatever. I see this guy chime in saying, hey, I have this really old dulcimer that my great-grandfather made. Uh, I'm going to put up a, a picture of it. You know, somebody, somebody pointed him to me. Hey, John Hallberg might know something about it, blah, blah, blah. So he posts up this picture. You know how there, there's some things about instruments there's like a constellation of variables on any one instrument where you see enough of them. It's like, all right, that's like a signature on that instrument. That's definitely made by the same person. So this guy has an instrument that was made by who he says is his great grandfather, Solomon Cox, 1799 to 1860. At least right now from family uh, record, we have the, you know, we unearthed that maker. So that one might have, uh, that one was always kind of one of my favorites but it might've ramped up to the top in terms of uh, actual historic importance yeah. and one of my favorite instruments, even though it's unplayable. Um, some of these instruments, uh, I was gonna talk about the whole thing about restoring uh, historic instruments. Is, this, is an instrument even possible to be playable? So if it's even possible to be playable, yeah, maybe you uh, restore it. If it's an instrument that you know is definitely not playable, but it's got a crack or something that might get worse, of course, maybe you fix the crack, but you don't try to fix something that's never going to be playable, you know? So, but yeah, I agree. If there's some, uh, certainly a historic instrument, if there's possibility of getting it to be played, there's this guy named Ben Seymour in Tryon, North Carolina, who basically I've sent two or three historic instruments to. It's like, he's the guy. If uh, you've got a historic instrument that, you know, is fragile, unreplaceable, all those kind of things, uh, I spend a few bucks and send it to him and uh, he makes it right. So he'll clean it from the inside or whatever it needs to be. I want to give you an opportunity uh, later to, to play a little bit for us. I know you have one there in your lap, but I, I also wanted to ask, are there any uh, dulcimer festivals out there that you would recommend for people that are new to the dulcimer, for people that are, are heavy into the dulcimer, very you interested know, in dulcimer it, of where they could attend, or is there any that you would recommend? Of course, we've got the COVID thing. That, that definitely put, uh, that made almost every dulcimer uh, festival immediately virtual, you know? So I think some of them are starting to come back. There's uh, one that's particularly good that I've heard that just happened a little bit ago. That's called Black Mountain uh, Festival down in North Carolina. I've heard really raving things about both in terms of uh, the way it's put on and the performers, but I actually did a little history class in the Nutmeg Festival, which is up in Connecticut. A guy named Sam Edelston runs it. Sam Edelston, uh, you guys probably may or may not know, he's kind of like the Jimi Hendrix of dulcimer. You know, having guys like that is kind of indispensable for, uh, you know, being a ambassador for the instrument. You mentioned Gene Ritchie, but also a lot of people have, have, have brought the dulcimer, Appalachian dulcimer into mainstream, like David Schnaufner. But I know that Cindy Lauper, Lauper studied off David Schnaufner, and I think she recorded an entire album of just 
her playing the dulcimer on, on a variety you know, of her songs and and you know was Dolly really, Parton and other people but oh yeah yeah, oh, yeah. no you know it was a really uh, disappointing day for me when I turned on the uh, Today Show one morning and uh, Cindy Lauper was on there playing uh, uh, time after time on her dulcimer and of course it was great and then when the song ended Matt Lauer was like and then I asked her some other question and didn't even mention the dulcimer at all. It was like, oh, come on, man. Uh, Bruce Hornsby. Uh, I actually have an end to Bruce Hornsby. I know the guy that made Bruce Hornsby's first instrument that he played with uh, professionally, you know, because, you, you, know, you know, of course, he does dulcimer sets now. I, I, want you, I want to give you your platform to talk about not only the Dulcimer Museum, but also the cider production that you plan on having there as well, the cider right. bar. But can you play us maybe a little 30 seconds so the listeners can at least hear oh, sure. um, hear your tune or hear the dulcimer? Uh, this is kind of how you typically play the dulcimer. It's kind of the notre drone style. So it'll be played with a pick, which of course traditionally was, uh, in Kentucky at least, was the turkey quill. So a plectrum, quote unquote. And on the uh, left hand, you'll have something that really can just be a piece of wood. It can be any sort of little, I've heard people use like a, a stick match, a piece of wood stick match, but this is just a little piece of um, bamboo. So, you know, you get these slidey sounds when you play a dulcimer with, uh, with the Notre Drone style. So, you know. if you play you know with your hands take both of those implements away uh you're going to get more of a soft sound of course you know so that kind of thing the more you play like that noter drone, the more it sounds like a classic dulcimer sound. The more you do like chords, you know, the more you don't really hear that that one drone. So it's funny, I remember I was saying the Scheitholt, uh, that's a German one. In Sweden, they call it the Hummel. So it's the only one that kind of has that onomatopoeic thing of what it sounds like. It's supposed to hum like a bee. And it's that, again, it's that, uh, you know, so. hear those two strings just kind of playing and noting or uh, uh, playing and uh, whizzing along and then you know you, you play two of them with your fingers you only have one of them doing that but you start playing three of them you know you take that uh, drone away I mean it's beautiful no matter how, no matter how you play it I guess but I kind of like the That's great, man. That's awesome. You tune it differently, and it is one of those things where I've got one here. This is tuned just slightly different, so I'll pick it up just to let you hear the. What style sound. is this that you're getting ready to play? Oh, this is just more of a, a, a minor tuning, I guess. Let's see. Awesome. a little bit more uh you know kind of like those murder ballads those child ballads that kind of thing I, that, i'm guessing from the purity of that sound that was a kentucky dulcimer wasn't it well yeah, it was at least two maybe like one <laughs> <laughs> no that was a straight-sided dulcimer it was made by a guy named len mckeckern who was actually post-folk revival so probably late 1960s you know that it's that thing where before the folk revival you pretty much only had it in appalachia after the folk revival, people all over, like people in California started making them. In California, it started to be like this kind of hippie expressionist thing. There was actually like a little dulcimer, dulcimer almost uh, clans or, uh, you know, communes as it were, you know. I mean, like as bohemian as you can get, like hippie types, 
And then you got the completely like church going, like, you know, types from Kentucky. And they, and they both champion the dulcimer, that's you know, great. and it's like they can be in the same room and not come to blows, maybe, you know. That's anyway. great. <laughs> First live performer on an episode. That that was fantastic. We appreciate it. Oh, well, that was a little bit of uh, on that second one. There's a song called Charlie's Neat. Almost all the songs I play kind of go way back. You know, I mean, it's fun to to try to do that thing like uh, Sam Edelston, like I was talking about, uh, you know, play Pink Floyd or whatever it is. I'm not classically trained, so I run up against uh, barriers sometimes. Sometimes I can break through some, and then sometimes they break me. We, uh, Like I said before, we want to definitely give you an opportunity to, to talk about your museum, let, let the listeners know when it might open, talk about the uh, cider production that, that you'll have there. Maybe right. if you have a brand, if you have a label. On the cusp of uh, putting a big website out, and the website, remember I was mentioning uh, the guy called Lee Allen Smith and his cat- categorizing dulcimers, uh, you know, going around in a van in Appalachia 45 years ago now. It was mid-1970s. I'm doing the cataloging like he did of our entire collection, and it's just taking a long time to do that and to photograph professionally all the instruments and really, that's one tick up from what he did. You know, that's one of the things that's going to be a great research tool. I mean, for years and years to come, because really, I'm trying to do it for not only the 60 or 70 instruments that we're going to have on display, but really every instrument in the collection. Tell Go me ahead. a little bit about the cider that you're going to offer. Cider used to be, especially in this area right outside the, the mill right here, it, this used to be kind of cider alley. So there used to be literally like 50 cider stands within like a 10 mile little area right here. And now there's down to just a few, of course. And hard cider is making something of a comeback, which is, of course, good because, you know, over 100 years ago, you know, it is one of those things where uh, cider, I don't want to say it was the dominant beverage, but it and beer were kind of neck and neck, you know. And then after World War One, it's like cider kind of took it to tumble down, whereas uh, beer, you know, again, with our German heritage, you know, you know, I feel pretty good about actually helping that tradition at least gain another little foothold here. One of the big apple varieties around here, going back, going way back, was the Albemarle Pippin. The Queen of England actually put, you know, duties on all the other apples coming from uh, from America. In other words, uh, don't send any, any apples over to England. But she wanted the Albemarle Pippin. It was so good. And here's an, an interesting thing: when we were renovating this building, of course, there was things that we found when we very first started. There was parts of an old Model T. There was, uh, you know, a bunch of old apple boxes with cool names on them. There was a thing with Albemarle Pippin uh, stamped into it. And it was a thing, of course, to put on an, on an apple box to just paint over. So, you know, you know, it was a stencil basically for uh, for apple boxes that you just put a paint on. And then uh, you can tell that that box is Albemarle Pippins. I found that a bit apropos that we're going to be uh, actually using some Albemarle Pippins. They're uh, a storied apple in this area. And we found uh, evidence of Albemarle Pippin use in this actual building. We're going to be also using, of course, uh, other heirloom varieties. Uh, we've got a orchard planted back here. It's only on year three. So, of course, it takes about five years for apples to produce, apple trees to produce apples. So we're going to be buying apples for a couple of years and we're going to be leasing orchards. But um, we fully plan on intending to have probably only about 200 trees we're going to have in our little orchard back here. That sounds like a lot, but of course, in terms of as orchards go, that's very small. It's probably still small enough that it can be mostly worked by hand. So, and they're mostly going to be dwarf trees and mostly heirloom varieties. So, you know, we'll probably be doing something that's similar to an English cider, you know, kind of semi-dry, but we'll probably have five or six taps though. So, you know, we'll probably be experimenting some. Cider's coming nouveau. People people these days do hop ciders. I mean, I don't want to go too crazy on it, on it, but we'll probably have a couple of fruited ciders. Berries go real well with cider, that kind of thing. But just to let our listeners know, it'll be around the first quarter when the Estes Mill, when when the site may open, when the yeah. cider production may start. In terms of like our equipment, you know, we've got tanks, we've got the press, we've got apples uh, that uh, really have been purchased, uh, but... Really, the ABC license, which is what you need to produce alcohol, is the main thing that's keeping us from pressing our first batch. I'm almost excited, as excited about that as uh, about the uh, the museum, uh, just because uh, again I've produced a, a cider professionally, but it's been some years, so I'm feeling some of the juices flow on that. Uh, no, no pun, pun intended. intended. 
Right. Uh, <laughs> Do you want to mention the name? So it's going to be the Appalachian Dulcimer Museum, of course. But the name of the cider company is actually, we were talking about this beforehand, it's actually a mnemonic device uh, to let you actually know how to say the word. It's not Appalachia, of course, it's Appalachia. So it's the Appalachian Dulcimer Museum and Appalachia Cider. So just imagine us an apple flying at you. You know, so that's the, that's your little mnemonic device there. And of course, the uh, guy in Appalachia ready to throw it at you if you say it wrong. <laughs> guys probably know what that is it's not a tenor banjo but that's uh, something called a prophet style or mountain banjo it's also called a minstrel banjo it's the kind that they started to make in the mountains after the civil war and it's all wooden um, usually with a groundhog uh, skin as the you know on the resonator portion the only portion that might not be wooden would be maybe like a, a um, a tin coffee can or a stovepipe or something in the middle. So the prelude for that was uh, talking about African-American influence on the dulcimer or the lack thereof. It is one of those things where Virginia, uh, again, the cradle of the dulcimer, but it's also, you know, had more African-Americans in it than any other state early on. So it's that thing where there had to have been some rubbing elbows, hadn't there? Very difficult to find any documented uh, Black involvement with the dulcimer. But uh, Roddy Moore down in, uh, I was mentioning down in Ferrum, he actually sold me an instrument recently by Mr. Cobb um, of Southwest Virginia, who's a documented black maker. And I've heard other stories of uh, black makers. And of course, there's that uh, thing down near Powell and Clinch Mountain, the, uh, the Melungeon population, cradle of the Elsmer, right next to Tennessee. So it's like, it just begs the question that there seemingly has to be some black involvement of the Elsmer, but back in an era, where almost nothing was documented, and certainly uh, black stuff, uh, African American stuff, was documented less than white stuff. You know, it seems like uh, with, with the African American influence upon the banjo, which is well documented, it would seem like there would have to be some carryover influence of one on the other. Did the drone string on the banjo have anything to do with any of the drone strings on the dulcimer? Probably not, because again, those there's, there's uh, you know European uh, diatonic instruments that had those drone strings on them already, but I mean, there has to be maybe some stylistic uh, uh, influence because of course, black and white were hand in hand in terms of some musical influences back in the day then. It's just kind of an, an interesting uh, subject. Yeah, you know? yeah, very, very neat. Very, very interesting. We, we definitely appreciate you being on this episode. I wanted to give you an opportunity to play us out. Do you have a favorite song or favorite instrument? Hey, here's a good one. I'll play you out, but not on a stringed instrument. I was going to say something about this earlier, and I'll just kind of make it be a little bit of a segue about uh, what I'll talk about. So the whole thing about uh, in Appalachia, entertainment early on, what do you have to work with? Wood. So you guys probably know what a limberjack is or a jig doll. It's a doll that's uh, jointed, that uh, has a stick on the back, and then uh, has a pad underneath it. You hit the pad. Of course, the pad's a piece of wood, and the a piece of wood bounces and the guy dances around so you had all these little things like that you have something called a cranky i don't know if you've heard of a mountain cranky the thing that has two spools and a papyrus that uh you know you have a story on there and with a light behind it and you crank the spool from uh, the top it's basically kind of the first uh, form of movie so it's a, a french thing from back in the middle ages of course that uh you know again was uh, brought to appalachia but you have all these things made of wood. Another thing, of course, that was made of wood. What uh, uh, respect, self-respecting jug band wouldn't have something like this? <laughs> Kazoos, harmonicas especially. Harmonicas, they didn't make an appearance until maybe around 1900-ish. These kind of things that you can do just Is by that yourself. You That's know. very cool. Is that an old-time kazoo? No, it's actually one that I made. I've actually started making a few kazoos just because they're so incredibly easy. And I've made one before that has, uh, if you guys can see, kind of like almost like the end of a trumpet, you know? So at the top, it'll have like one of these things to basically like a bullhorn, you know, to make the sound uh, increase. No, so I'll probably sell these. We'll have a little gift shop. I'll sell mountain banjos. I'll sell dulcimers. There's a guy named Bobby Ratliff in uh, Grundy, Virginia, who makes incredibly uh, traditional uh, Virginia dulcimers. There's also a guy named Tyler Webb, who's like probably younger than you guys. He's probably like 25. He's like the youngest guy who's making traditional Virginia dulcimers. And I think he's kind of down in like Tidewater area. 
very reasonable too. I think, you know, that's another reason that people should be buying dulcimers for their kids as a first instrument. You know, there's yeah. starting to be, uh, there's starting to be uh, kids, like there's a couple of uh, people that have won like the national dulcimer, you know, they're in their twenties. And so there is hope that uh, these dulcimer, I was going to say these dulcimer festivals for the most part uh, that we were talking about earlier, they are a sea of gray, of gray hairs. So uh, it is good to see, uh, you know, some other young folks uh, mixed in there. It's definitely good to keep that heritage alive, which is, you know, a large part of of this podcast as well. I think I can almost guess what you're going to say, John, but we all, we ask all of our guests this same question. I I just want to know what comes to mind or what's the first thing that, that you would roll off the tongue when somebody says to you the word Appalachia? I don't know that it could be anything, but the, you know, okay, here's a good one. <laughs> so both in Southwest Virginia and to somewhat in Tennessee and Kentucky, it's not dulcimer. If you say dulcimer, people know that A, you're not talking about the hammer dulcimer because there is no hammer dulcimer. If you say dulcimer, you're talking about the Appalachian dulcimer. So I guess if you say Appalachian, I will say dulcimer. <laughs> More rather Perfect. than less. But anyway. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you guys. Uh, no, this was a pleasure. So uh, with that, of course, I'd invite people to, sure. uh, to come in a few months once we're open up and uh, just delve in a little deeper. So, Will, did you ever think we would have a dulcimer player live on our podcast? <laughs> Yeah, so John Hallberg's doing great things over there in uh, Virginia with the, uh, his new Dulcimer Museum. Appreciate him coming on the show tonight and really teaching class. I appreciated his time too, man. It was definitely an education on the Dulcimer. Obviously, a lot of knowledge. Just cool to hear about his the, the breadth of his collection that he's going to be putting into the museum. You know, so I know that our listeners couldn't really see it like we can, uh, fortunately. But what a cool setting that museum is going to be in uh, over there in, in, in Virginia. And I hope I get an opportunity to sneak in there sometime. And if you, you know, if you don't like dulcimers, you can check out some cider absolutely that's what i'm saying i mean i like dulcimers i can't play one as you know but i i guarantee i can drink me some cider well, i appreciate john's time i appreciate all he's doing over there and I'm grateful he took a little time out of his schedule to uh talk to us about the dulcimer and also to play the dulcimer keep checking his website out just to see i think he said he's going to add the collection on the website just to see even if you can't make it to the museum Absolutely. <laughs> it was a learning opportunity just to hear from uh, a luthier. We talked about it kind of in the intro, music instrument making, which is what a luthier is. Deeply rooted in Appalachia, some uh, as far back as, you know, the 1800s. I know in Kentucky, one of the first people to do that was James Edward Thomas out of Hyman, Kentucky. They called him Uncle Ed. But it's just cool to hear all that rich history, to hear John talk about how it traveled from Germany and how it came down from Philadelphia, kind of along that trail, and how it ended up as the Appalachian dulcimer throughout the region. I uh, appreciate John, uh, but I did want to move on and ask you uh, about our next segment of, of Place. I mean, does anything kind of hit you tonight as we uh, went through this interview i just want to take the of place section kind of take the opportunity to talk about he mentioned the Heinemann settlement settlement school which is if you're from eastern kentucky most people are familiar with the Heinemann settlement school and what they do but another another place in Heinemann, which for some of the listeners that don't know Heinemann's really in the heart of the coal fields in eastern kentucky they really work hard at the settlement school to keep tradition alive there's another place over there called the Appalachian Artisan Center, <clears throat> and it promotes, you know, the work of artists and craftsmen kind of throughout the mountains and throughout eastern Kentucky. But one of the things that they have over there is the Appalachian School of Luthiery. They have a master luthier, Doug Naselrod. He, he teaches and coaches the construction of instruments not only the dulcimer, but the mandolin, guitar, and other string instruments. But the thing that makes it cool 
you know, we have other problems that we've mentioned on this show before uh, throughout Appalachia, but especially in Eastern Kentucky, most of the people, you know, they hear about the challenges in Eastern Kentucky. And most people have heard about the, you know, the opioids, the opioid epidemic, the substance abuse issues that we have throughout the region. This Appalachian School of Luthiery takes it a step further. And they not only train people to um, become luthiers, but they take people out of recovery to become luthiers. I, I don't know the history but behind this place of how that developed, kind of taking people from recovery to become master luthiers. But they've kind of created, even out of that, their own company, which is called the Troublesome Creek Stream Instrument Company. And so this company, you know, they train, like I said, people in recovery to become some of the best luthiers in the country. And if you have time, you know, check out the story. There's some people on there that had major issues in regards to substance substance abuse, which we have that issue. We have that challenge in Eastern Kentucky, but it doesn't mean that we can't overcome. And a lot of these people that have gone through this program that have been trained and have become part of this t- Troublesome Creek Stream Instrument Company have really become the best luthiers in the country. It's really a cool story and really kind of getting beyond the challenges that we have in Eastern Kentucky and showing the solutions and showing the promising opportunities that these individuals, that any individual can have. And I just wanted to mention that, you know, it, it kind of connects to obviously what we're talking about tonight with the Appalachian dulcimer and mm-hmm. all the great knowledge that John had, but also just to connect to some, some of the issues, some of the challenges but just to show that, you know, just because we have challenges doesn't mean there aren't opportunities and doesn't mean we can't overcome those challenges. Right. It's always great to mention folks that are out there uh, trying to create different pathways for people to find success uh, throughout Appalachia. So I appreciate you mentioning that. That's really all I had, man. Really good good episode. I thought it was uh, great when he played the dulcimer. Well, I, I mentioned, I think, in the beginning, the mandolin. I think watching a live show of the mandolins just fire. I, I have to admit, I've never seen the dulcimer live. I'd love to check out Dolly Parton playing the dulcimer. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> I, I'll end it like I usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting I'm facing down with a grin I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong In the mountains